I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. You are listening to Death by DVD. We've been sitting here since midnight, and we'll be sitting here till noon, talking about Phantasm. We're about to begin a month-long celebration on what I dare say is the greatest film series to ever fucking exist. A whole month of Phantasm, one through five. What, what could be better? I don't know. I'm Hank, the world's greatest, by the way, and with me as always is my ice cream man best friend. I, Alexander Nash. I'm hot as love. We're hot as love, baby. We're... No, just me. Oh, well, fuck you. You're an ice cream man. Would you be cold as love? No? Probably the greatest thing about the Phantasm series in itself is a gentleman named Reggie Bannister. I don't think anyone ever on this planet is as cool or will be as cool as Reggie Bannister. And I mean, that's a big statement. Steve McQueen, not as cool as Reggie Bannister. Paul Newman, not as cool as Reggie Bannister. These are stone-cold facts, and really, without Reggie Bannister, I don't think there would be Phantasm. I don't think there would be anywhere near as much love for Phantasm without Reggie. He, He's the king, man. Well, not only is he the king, he's just, as far as horror goes, and you always, you know, you have an everyman, Reggie is, like, the coolest everyman. Everybody can kind of relate to Reggie uh, into a certain way, shape, or form, just how the character is portrayed and not only is that i i don't really associate with with being as much of a character it helps that it's his actual first name but it's that's just reg man like i don't i don't think reggie in his real life ran around with a fucking four-barreled shotgun and like you know did battle all the time but i mean i don't think he's playing much of a character i think that's pretty much who he is I also don't think he didn't do those things, though. I mean, that's just kind of how Reggie is. It's very believable he could have. It's very believable he could just have been riding around the country the last 35 years in an ice cream truck. You don't know. I was lucky enough to meet the man several years ago, and it just was an overwhelmingly awesome and positive experience because that's who Reggie Bannister is. He will make you laugh within five minutes, not even minutes, seconds of being around him. Just one of the most PMA type of people in the world. Positive mental attitude goes the whole way. Very vibrant, very beautiful. Uh, gets treated like shit in the Phantasm series, though. Doesn't doesn't fare very well uh, to me. I mean, he, he get, always gets the lady... Sort of. Kind of. Sort of. <laughs> it's the lady. I mean, it gets pulled away from his grasp at every uh, every stretch of every film. But at the same time, a balding ex-ice cream man who's a stoner being looked at as this incredibly sexually attractive man and just being this, like, uber Superman type character is just – it's kind of really interesting and just – very heartwarming for me personally. And I think that's really the best way to lead into what is Phantasm, because we've pretty much established who the hero is, despite the fact the movie we're about to be talking about. <laughs> He's barely in. He shows up in Phantasm, and it, it cements the Reggie Bannister that we are going to know for the rest of the series. But the first Phantasm movie, I don't know what it's about. Do you? <laughs> Does anybody know what Phantasm is actually yeah. about? I mean, I, I've got ideas of what it's about as far like joe bob briggs always made a statement of 
there's too much plot to get in the way of the story or there's no plot to get in the way of the story. It's always has always described it. And it's a true statement because plot is very much a part of American filmmaking. It's very much about going from point A to point B to accomplish C. And that can be interesting, but in something like Italian horror cinema, there is no point A, point B, or point C to get to. It's all about like feeling the tone. It's all about taking you through just kind of an experience and letting you experience it as an audience member, as opposed to like trying to tell you this like very in-depth story. And that's how I view Phantasm because it's more of an experience. It's about emotion. It's about tonality. It is about concepts. It has nothing to do with like plot per se. It's mostly about feelings and for a horror series, this is it's very much about family. And that's what I really associated. It's about people who really love each other. True love between people who might not even be related, but they do love each other because they are yeah. family. That's something that's really valuable to bring up is the fact that it defines family in the idea of some something you pick, something that you have not just an affinity for, but safety, love, honor. Not all family is blood. It can be so much more than that. And that's really one of the most beautiful things when you go through this series is you either relate to having had that or you deeply yearn for that type of connection. And it it's, it's not a sad thing. It's a very warm embrace. Phantasm, it's strange to say, is a very warm embrace whenever you visit the series. Well, the character of Michael pretty much personifies this idea that... His parents die, and all he has left is Jody, his brother, who he thinks is going to leave him at any minute, Reggie, um, a couple other people in the town, and it's his quest. It's almost like his dream state of family and him wanting to hold on to a family and to have people around him that he loves, but yet this outsider, the aspect of his dream that would be considered a nightmare, the tall man and all the iterations around the tall man are the are is basically death, and that's what phantasm is a lot about. Is just a lot of um, meditations on the ideas of death, how death makes you feel, and that's really what Michael is dealing with: is the idea of death all around him, his uh, brother's friend dying, his parents dying, and death is going to come for us all. It's going to take his brother, and like one of the most poignant scenes in the original phantasm is where Bill Thornberry playing uh, Jody talks about. Well, he just keeps following me around. And they had that flashback scene of Jody on the bike. Just, you know, he's not even thinking about anything. He's just, like, riding for fun. And Michael is just running after him like a puppy because he's scared to death that he's going to lose him at some point. So he's just, with all of his emotion and passion, trying to hold on to his family and have people he loves around him. And just being so scared that death is going to come for him. And you, too, can take this perspective with things actually being real and some of the things that Michael is experiencing being a true reality, which we'll later get into deeper with the sequels. But it's like the tall man, this entity itself, specifically feeds off of Michael's fear that he's attracted to it, and that's maybe what brought him to this land. But the movie begins, I think, with a really effective, usually you'd call it a cheap jump scare, but you have, you know, this femme fatale having sex in a cemetery, which is, it's the 70s, but still you show something like that. It's really off kilter. It's not the average love scene. And what we assume to be our lead, a character named Tommy, gets killed right then and there. 
and then we get our leads. And it follows to, again, the whole beginning of the movie, I think, is Coscarelli playing around with your emotions because you get the sensual scene that leads to death and then it immediately begins with Michael riding through the cemetery and you get this really jumpy sequence of his motorcycle revving. And we get a different reality. We get a completely different feeling. And what makes Phantasm so unique itself is the multiple feelings and emotions we can get because you can struggle and hope your hardest to try and make this narrative. You can try and figure out from point A to point B, well, was he dreaming? When Michael goes into the tall man's world, did he ever come back? uh... Irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, philosophically, we can spend a lot of time dissecting that and going through it, but when you're looking at the very, very first Phantasm and you push everything else aside, it, it truly is the tone and emotion that gives you any quality to this movie because it's like people constantly say it's a fever dream. I don't know why it would have to be a fever dream or even a nightmare. It's just the idea of loss. I mean, you could really calculate it and break it down to something that simple, that it really is Michael's fear, 100% of abandonment and loss, and possibly not even really wanting to grow up. He's at a point in his life that everything is perfect. I mean, gets to drive around in a muscle car and drink Dos Equis with his brother, and everything's okay. I mean, his parents are dead, but he has what he considers, I feel, the utmost safety in his life. Everything is perfect. the real of life haven't started for him yet. Yeah, he's not had to go through a a lot of hardships. I mean, losing your parents is ridiculously hard, and I'm not saying that, but he hasn't fucking paid taxes or... (laughs) Yeah, he hasn't had to, like, you know, get the 9-to-5 job yet. I mean, think about when you were a kid. Even if you grew up in turmoil, a lot of the best times in your life were when you were, say, like, 14 to, say, 22, because most of that time is somewhat carefree. I mean, people have problems all around but at the same time everything doesn't seem so inevitable you seem like you have a little bit more control or the world's a lot more mysterious than it is and when you start hitting like your 30s it's just like no the world is i have to do this to do this to get this well, i mean we could sound kind of old here because we, we the last generation there was a tv show called 16 and pregnant so i think a lot of What is effective about Phantasm really is the era and when people saw it. Now, of course, I wasn't around in the late 70s to see this movie, but I did see it as a 14, 15-year-old, and it really affected me at that age because I related completely to Michael. I I understood him. Who wouldn't want to be him? Hanging out, shooting shotguns, fighting monsters, riding in a fucking barracuda, a a hemi-cuda. Coolest thing in the world. The world has changed so drastically, Phantasm almost could come off if somebody watched it for the first time now. As cheesy or, you know, retro, because it's such a almost innocent world. Uh, riding around in a cemetery, just he has so much freedom. And there's nothing like that anymore. And I think responsibilities and the pressures of the world and society has so greatly changed. I mean, referencing, again, stuff like 16 and Pregnant, I don't think the innocence of childhood, I guess you could say, is as felt or as innocent as it once was that that's really a purity with this movie is its placement it's the late 70s 1978 1979 and you have to look at what a teenager a young man a young person would have been in that era and i think it really is a connection to a a lost era a lost emotion i don't think people i mean this is an odd statement but i just don't think people are that way anymore or are the way michael is at 14 and phantasm well i mean at a certain point in your life, you have to get to the realization that everyone around you is going to die. All balls will drop. 
I mean, and that's basically true. It's just everyone around you is going to die. Your parents, they're not superheroes. They're just as dumb as you. They're making just as many mistakes as you have always made. There is no like inherent change in you from 15 to 23 to like 45. You are still that same person. There isn't just that switch flipped. And in Phantasm, it's almost like this 15-year-old boy who's trying so hard to hold on to that youth and innocence of his life where he can live carefree without responsibility so he doesn't have to experience all these things that are coming in the real world for him. But at a certain point, the day you do grow up is the day that you, quote-unquote, like, kill your parents, where you kill the idea of, like, there's always going to be someone to protect you, there's always going to be, this is going to last forever. No. Eventually, you are you will be on your own. You will be left all alone, and it'll be up to you, and you're not going to be any different than you were at 15. You're going to be just as scared. You're going to be just, I mean, you're going to be that exact same person. So it's natural to want to hold on to these things. And a lot of it is just Michael dealing with that sheer fact. Because if you break it down into being like not a series, if this being just a lone film where basically Michael is realizing that when he wakes up from the dream, Jody is dead and Michael has basically been having this long dream of trying to hold on to Jody, trying to hold on to his older brother. I don't want you to die. I want to protect you from death. I don't want to protect you from the world. I don't want you to leave me. I don't want you to grow up. And, you know, I want us to continue to have these good times together. But it's really just a dream of his his deceased brother. And that's really what's very poignant about the film is just that emotion of wanting to keep that connection and wanting to never be alone, even though growing up, you're going to realize that, yeah, you're going to be alone. Even when you get married, even when you have kids, you're still going to feel alone. And Michael just hasn't gotten to that point yet. He will eventually. There's nothing that can stop it, but well, he's just <laughs> trying so hard to hold on to it. As the series progresses, I don't know if that could be entirely true with what Coscarelli took Phantasm to. But the end of the movie is the old fuckerunski, you know, the famous Don Coscarelli, I'm going to really switch it up on him. Maybe it was all real. We don't have any idea. But that's one of my utmost favorite parts is that very final boy. And everything you were just talking about really reminds me of that scene from The Crow where Michael Wincott is talking to his sister, whose name I can't remember. Bai Ling. God damn it. Look at me. I remember Bai Ling's name. I'm the one. I'm the one person. He says something to the effect of, the day your childhood's over is when you realize you're going to die, or something like that. Michael Wincott's got a great voice, and I did no fucking justice to it there. Um... Dad gave me this. Fifth birthday. He said, childhood's over in the moment you know you're going to die. But you have no concept. And it's not just childhood, it's not just innocence, but one day that thought enters your head and it infiltrates it, and the anxiety from it, I think, is what the end of the movie kind of stands for, is we are, I guess, his parents and Jody's dead, and the only thing he has now is the safety of Reggie, the, the only confidant and friend that he, he knows, the only person that he has a familiarity with, and maybe the realization that he completely is alone is the appearance of the tall man, allowing us to know that Michael is 
progressing in his venture through life. But that's so technical. I think it's boring. I, I love the <laughs> idea of, no, he went through the fucking gate and, and Reggie touched it and they, they opened some stuff and there's a time warp. And because when you get into the second movie, and when we get into the second movie, I guess that's where more of the speculative fun will start with our month-long Phantasm series, because we have no option later on but to kind of be fanboys and, uh, well, what do you think? Oh, yeah. And come up with stuff like that. But but Phantasm itself, the, the original motion picture, I think is so set in stone, there are, there are so many ways to interpret it, and that's kind of beautiful that every person that watches it, it doesn't matter if you never see the rest of the series, you, you will always have that first movie to interpret however you want to. And how the series ends, it's pretty much returned to that open interpretation. That's, I think, a skill and talent with Coscarelli is just constantly being able to essentially retell the same story because even with the second film where Michael is replaced, uh, a Michael Baldwin is replaced with James Legros, it is a story of fear and abandonment and trying to cling to never having to deal with it. Really. I mean, it, it is a quest of Michael Mike to never grow up. And the, the heartwarming aspect of that is throughout the series. Eventually Reggie's always there for him. Reggie, like as as everybody leaves you and and as you realize you're more and more alone, that Reggie is fighting like hell to always be there for him. So he's always that one thing that's clasping Michael to some form of reality to where he doesn't basically get fully black pilled into realize like just death and what's the point of life if death is always around the corner, if the tall man is always there. It's Reggie's always there. Yeah, I'll fight with you. Let's go. Because, I mean, and that's the importance of holding on to that family in the midst of something like, something like death. Death that's always approaching. Well, infinitely, too, you have the, the concept of good versus evil. And, and Reggie, Reggie Bannister, the, the human being and Reggie, the character, I think, is nothing but the essence and the portrayal of good uh, just good never letting evil win good fighting until it's good i mean in the essence of what we're talking about here it's like <sighs> never letting the light not shine or whatever the fuck matthew mcconaughey says in true detective well i mean like reggie obviously wanted to be some sort of rock musician at some point in his his life but he ended up having to pay some bills so he became an ice cream man but that doesn't fucking bother him. He loves being an ice cream man on top of that, but I still get to play my guitar. Nothing can get Reggie down. That's what's so great about the character. I always saw him more as this kind of mystical creature that, you know, is just incredibly content in life and wanted to be an ice cream man that sings to the people on the side, that he like a minstrel, a bard of sorts. And that's really what is is so unique about the character is he is an ice cream man. He wears white the entire movie, and this is the late 70s, mind you. A lot of bell-bottom action. Awesome bell-bottom action. The costuming, I believe, was Don Coscarelli's mother, and some of it's a little silly. One of my favorite scenes, uh, really the, the best introduction of Reggie, he pulls up. And everybody, every I think every fan, fan, you know, P-H-A-N, Loves this scene. This is I. I can't really pick my favorite. I really, 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 really love the ending. But everybody loves this. Reggie gets out of this vintage ice cream truck, and it's amazing. And him and Bill Thornberry plays Jody. Sit down and have an amazing jam. They play this song on the porch. Dosecki's bottles are everywhere, and it's such a weird turn for this movie. Like. We've been exploring these weird hooded monsters that are running around a cemetery while this little boy is certain evil things are happening, and then these guys just sit down and have this kind of, like, 
blues jam. Just one of them's wearing a derby hat. It's just so fun and so pure. You are part of it. You're just enjoying this nice afternoon on the porch while they're sitting there at midnight and sitting there at noon. And then the movie doesn't even specifically change paces. It just goes. It's it's a fluency and it's uh, it's just like a really primed engine. In fact, one could say Phantasm is like the engine of a Hemi Barracuda. It's fucking Well, like, I think that's what works in this movie's favor so much is the script was very unfinished and it lends itself to a certain improvisational nature to what the film is because it's able to, like, pause itself and have time for great scenes like that and also to do a lot of exploratory things with the the entire narrative and the plot. And that's what kind of makes it so interesting because it, it can go all over the place. It can just feel like echoes of scenes and it does feel like a dream. And I think a lot of that is just how Don Carascarelli took to making the film is just, I don't think he fully knew where he wanted to go with it, but that so works in the film's favor, favor to where it just, it goes in all the places it just needs to go. And it's almost like he didn't have control over it. He had control over it in the editing and just, and that's, what's great about it. Yeah. I think that's where the movie actually turns into perfection because they shot a great deal of unnecessary stuff that is fun. It's lighthearted. just as equally nice as the sitting here at midnight scene when they're jamming on the porch, but some of it's unnecessary. Like you've got a scene where Jody gets Mike drunk for possibly the first time. I don't think so. Then they go to Reggie's and get into an ice cream fight and they build a chocolate sundae on Michael's chest because he's passed out. that would have drastically changed the tone of the movie having a weird ice cream fight very kenny and company it's yeah i think that's like where that's the two like don coscarelli's two worlds sort of converge between his kind of more child like jim's the world jim the world's greatest and kenny and company style of filmmaking collided with his horror filmmaking and he needed like to self-edit granted but also that's also what makes Phantasm great is because of the childlike wonderment that he does put to what is essentially a horror film. And it, he talks about this endlessly in many of the commentaries, but a lot of the drive to make a horror picture came from a jump scene that was in Kenny and Company. And when he saw it with an audience, people you know, jumped and it kind of gave him that idea of, well, I could really control some emotion here. I could really do something with this. So when he set out to make Phantasm, I don't think it was going to be anywhere near as horrific and dreadful and yet philosophical as what it turned out to be i think it was going to maybe even end up being more of a family friendly experience but there was a lot of inappropriate humor uh, like reggie and bill or reggie and jody are dating sisters and there's a lot of deleted uh, you can find a lot of deleted scenes that are innuendos about sex just meaningless stuff when we go back to the whole idea of this being a dream and as you were discussing how the film is laid out to us it really is i agree with you It's not like a fever dream at all. It's just like a dream. Things are somewhat out of shape. We even get a scene with a housekeeper that we've never once seen before. People just appear. People disappear. But the main thing is it doesn't matter that Reggie has a girlfriend. It doesn't matter that Jody has a girlfriend because Mike is our avatar. We're going through his emotions. And if it is a dream, why would he be dreaming about his brother's girlfriend and them going on a date? It doesn't make sense. We are directly in Mike's stratosphere. You know, we are, we're, I don't know if it would be a stratosphere. That's a weird fucking way to say it. We're in Mike's world. We're directly with him. So sticking to that as it's all a dream, it would make sense. I mean, it's a very acceptable, it's a very reasonable way to translate this movie. 
I don't personally have a way. I don't I don't care. I love sitting down and watching Phantasm and then some concepts I can dig that it's a dream. I am, I guess, much more of a fanboy when it comes to something like this. So I love the idea of the tall man being a real evil alien because that's what we find out through Mike and something we've kind of neglected to, to talk about is Jody's friend dies. At the cemetery during the funeral, Mike sees this caretaker, this ridiculously tall man played by the late, great, beautiful Grammy Award winning Angus Scrim. He's able to just pick up this coffin with with no problems at all. Mike knows something's up. Nobody believes him because he's a 13 year old kid. He has an active imagination. And throughout this, you you don't really have anyone else's reality. You have Mike struggle to make other people believe what he has seen, and then once they finally believe him, it just goes immediately into action. We are good. We are the light. We've got to conquer evil. We cannot let this happen. And that's what you have. It's a fight of good versus evil. And that's where I, as a fan, kind of fall into, like, yeah, let's kick the tall man's ass. Because apparently, Mike slips into the tall man's world throughout this movie in the middle of Phantasm, and we learn, I guess he psychically gets all this knowledge, that the tall man is an evil alien from another galaxy who has come to our planet, and they're crushing down people to send back to their planet to be slaves, which is goofy. It's such a goofy idea, but when you watch it, when you're seeing it in the movie, you're like, holy shit, they're fucking stealing people and making them into small people and making them slaves! Like, you you want the good to win. It doesn't matter how ridiculous. You're Reggie at this point. Let's do it. Let's just fucking kick some ass. And I, I everything about that... No matter how many times I've seen it, I always feel that exact same way when they are all together in the mortuary and you start realizing, well, this is good versus evil, man. This is just a cowboy story and we got to kick some ass. I love it. And with that, like, very kind of sci-fi movie explanation that they kind of passively threw in to the original Phantasm and somewhat carry it through. I mean, they carry it through all the concepts, but they don't necessarily talk about fucking space. It's mostly just other dimensions and... Yeah, I mean... They specifically call him an alien in Phantasm, but later on we will explore the other roads. And that's kind of what's very interesting about the film, and back to that improvisational nature of the film. A good portion of this movie doesn't even feel like a dream to me as much as it feels like a 60-year-old man, 70-year-old man, and this will tie in somewhat to Phantasm Five, having a flashback to their youth, to that last great summer before um, they had to grow up, and they're remembering everything kind of wrong. They're kind of filling in gaps with other things and trying to piece this thing all together, but there's definitely different echoes of emotion that they're feeling. And that's kind of how we experience things as human beings. We experience the emotion, because all of our memories are completely fucked. I mean, we think we can remember things really good, but what we're really... remembering more than anything is how we emotionally responded to certain different aspects of our life. And that's why you hold on to certain memories harder than you hold on to other ones, because that's a bad memory. I want to block it away. So that bad memory that you don't think about at all gets morphed and changed and it becomes more evil than it actually probably was in that situation because you didn't pick through it uh, and you didn't emotionally deal with it. But the good stuff we trump up and we pretend like it was more epic than it actually was. And that's really what phantasm feels like to me is, just like an old man remembering his youth, this very strange youth that the pieces don't all fit together. Like, no, that uh, that guy who ran the mortuary, he was like a, he was like a weird evil alien or something. It's like, well, you might be remembering this wrong. You might be remembering that because he scared you so much that you 
made up this whole thing in your head, but it traveled through the years because you just kept trumping it up and trumping it up and trumping it up in your head. And in actuality, he was just a creepy old guy in the town. So, and, but that's again, what really works about the film is it's just, we don't nail down any of this stuff. So you're able to just like glide in and out of someone's consciousness almost. I don't know if it's Michael's. I don't know if it's fucking Reggie's at this point. I don't know whose consciousness this is, but that's what we're doing. We're gliding through some character's consciousness and their remembrance of a time from the past. And if you can look at the entire series of Phantasm as just one big flashback that you're remembering somewhat incorrectly, it makes it even more enjoyable because it's, I don't know, it's just viewing it that way for me makes me think about how I view some things in my youth and how I've probably changed the narrative of different events that happen and made certain things feel better than they actually did or just just changed the overall composition of what happens in reality because it happens to all of this and I think Phantasm is kind of a meditation on that in general as well. Something also to acknowledge when it comes to the concept, well, not so much a concept because memories are a bit more than that, of memories in general is it's always your perspective. You're remembering things a certain way. If you were with somebody else, they might have an entirely different memory. So going to what you just said, we don't know whose consciousness this is, whose memory we're dealing with, but it is directly from their perspective. So Everyone does remember something completely different. Two people could be in the same room or at a concert. It's all perception. Yeah, I mean, two people could be at a concert and will have completely different memories from what happened that night. It's all identity. It's all your consciousness. It's all that one fluent stream. And when you move into the whole universe of Phantasm, you can really dabble with the question of, well, maybe the first movie could be Mike's consciousness. Maybe the second movies could be Jody's. Or the third movies could be Jody's. The second movies could be Reggie's. The fifth movies could be Reggie's or a combination of all of them. You're... Well, they all could be Reggie. Yeah, I mean, there's no true answer to it. It's like one of those books where you can pick your own ending and you have to flip to a different page to figure out what's going on. The The connection isn't necessarily loose. It's there for you to adapt and to make the art itself you're allowed to really be a part of phantasm at, when you watch this when you experience it as a fan because it really is up to you there are no answers you can listen to every commentary and you'll learn some really fascinating technical stuff and you'll hear everyone else's personal opinion on it but that's truly what it comes down to well the entire movie was put together with chewing gum and popsicle sticks that's yeah. very impressive to me though is like there is money involved that i mean there was a budget but they built the entire mortuary set, and it looks like it's fucking marble. And as Don Coscarelli put it, they didn't know how to build a set, so they just built, like, real things. Yeah, they had, they had no idea. I mean, these guys were, like, actual construction workers, and I believe they were pretty young, like 18 or 19 years old. So when he gave them the instructions for it, they'd never worked for Hollywood. They had no idea what they were doing, so they were these sturdiest sets that probably cost more money to tear down than it was to fix. All the marble was contact paper that Don Coscarelli's mother had found that they had to buy, like, God, imagine how I couldn't... <laughs> I'm trying to think in my head how much you would have to buy for that set. And it's it's the, That's what the budget was. And then, of course, you've got the ice cream truck and the fucking Hemi Cuda. Now, everybody knows Joe Bob's fascination and love for the Hemi Cuda, especially in Phantasm Three when it races that kick-ass pink hearse. I will spare raving and going on and on and on about that Graveyard Cars episode I watched like 19 fucking times when it came out because it's easily accessible information. But as a, it's almost a character itself. It's kind of like 
the Mad Max universe, you've got the Interceptor. Every movie has a different variation of the Interceptor, and it's how you kind of know you're you're following along the same guy's story almost. It's like his trademark horse. That's what the Barracuda is in this series. And I think it is almost a character because a lot of the compassion, a lot of the, the memories and love that Michael has surrounds the car and surrounds his brother working on the car. And what we find out at the end of the film is Jody died in a car wreck. So presumably in the Hemikuda. Well, no, the Hemikuda is at Reggie's, isn't it? Makes uh, no I, sense. You're getting mixed up inside of the phantasm yeah. world and asking what's reality. I have no idea what the fuck is reality at this point. But I think you'd be left to just assume that. And I think using the car as a device throughout the entire series is the connection of Michael never wanting to give up on Jody, never wanting to admit that Jody is dead. If he is, and it's really your because the movie fucking ends, the tall man appears again. He can't, what are we going to do, two double dream sequences? You can never tell with Don Coscarelli. He's insane. And he doesn't age. I'm somewhat concerned he actually might be proof of vampire. Well, I mean, even with the Hemikuda, like, not to offend anybody, because I love the Hemikuda. It's a fucking super badass car. But it's also the perfect representation of what a 15-year-old kid would think is just, like, the coolest fucking car in the world. And it's something that continues throughout the series. And a lot of the series and this film is just... Again, what a 15-year-old thoughts would be, what their obsessions would be. we got to hold on to this car, dude. We've got to use this car to fight evil. When It's probably not the most practical car. I mean, probably a van to hold your weaponry in or something along those lines would probably be a little better suited. Well, it eventually becomes kind of a Mother Medusa sort of thing. Because, I mean, we can't say classic cars aren't going to be great for the apocalypse when the mother Medusa exists in front of us. Just on that idea alone, it's just, it's so much of trying to hold on to that youth, trying to hold on to those great fucking memories. Yeah. We always drove that car. Hell, they probably sold that car in 1983 and bought fucking something more efficient, more gas efficient. Well, trauma affects people so differently. And it it's, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that could be kind of a, a look into Mike and the universe of Phantasm that he was so affected by the trauma of his parents dying. And then his brother, his best friend, his only person at all dying him being pushed into this foreign world having to accept reggie as his only confidant it could be a form of of post-traumatic stress that michael just can't get over this so he is constantly blocking himself from moving forward with these fantasies and and never allowing life to move on because of trauma which happens constantly i mean i personally even have events and horrible things that happened in my life that i think about constantly and sometimes as with everyone, it builds up on you and you just can't take it anymore. Reggie is this emphasis of you have to, you have to keep going. You you can't just give up. You have to survive. There's always a point to surviving. There's always a way to get better. It might hurt and there will always be a scar, but we can heal. We can conquer. Unfortunately, most people don't have a Reggie. I think the world would be a better place if we all had our personal Reggie Bannister. Everyone gets assigned one when they're like 13 years old. Fucking, it, it'd be amazing. Why, hello there. It's been a while. I hope you're ready for another brain melting round of Keith David. Oh. 
David Keith, who not only stars, but directed the 1988 movie The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck, about a drunken, down-on-his-luck adventurer who is hired by a wealthy man and his beautiful wife to take them on a hunting expedition in the jungle. Is it Keith David? Oh! Or is it David Keith? Time's up. It's David Keith. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to the boys. Throughout the series, and we'll get more in depth into this as we go through, you really do slowly follow Reggie more and more. And I know that was a conscious dis- decision by um, Coscarelli, but also it also feels incredibly natural. It's that one person that will always fight for you, that one person who will always come to your aid. And that's what makes the real heart of the series is this character who to be uh, completely honest, is in a certain um, state of um, arrested development himself, still holding on to the past, still holding on to the long hair, even though you've gone completely bald. Hey, um, fuck that, man. If I ever even go full completely bald, I'd Reggie it up every single day because I think it's more of the spirit. I think it's more of, of Reggie, the human, the entity, and the comfort they have with themselves, they don't really care how they're preceded. They don't care what people think of them or how they look. That it's, you know what, I'm an ice cream man. I want to have my long hair. I don't think, I mean, I, I, I agree with you kind of half and half. Because I really think that you have a lot of confidence with this character. I think Reggie is kind of the, the, the better big brother role model that Jody isn't necessarily the best person to be taking care of Michael. He's not going to be the best for Michael as to where Reggie is so comfortable with himself, but yet, I mean, he owns his own fucking business. I don't know. <laughs> it's just the concept, I guess, and that's something interesting with, with hearing both of us do this is any person to watch this movie, you have this different sight in your head where you almost make lives for these characters of what Reggie is, what Jody stands for, who all these people are. Well, I just had an insane thought. (laughs) Um, You could almost look at these two characters, Michael and Reggie, who continue out through the series, as two sides of the same coin. They can almost be the same exact person. Reggie is almost an example of where Michael would be in the future, this person who's held on to their youth, this side of no, 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 you're growing up, but your youth will always be there for you. Even when that youth turns to an older man, I will always be there to fight with you. The, like, you know, these young feelings that you have and like Reggie's almost a personification of those like adolescent feelings of like, nah, man, you don't have to totally grow up. You don't have to go into the tall man's dark ass world and deal with all this death all the time. There is still light. There is still good things. There is still things from your adolescence that will carry you through like this growing up because Michael grows up through the series 
um, just as much as Reggie and everybody else does. And Reggie is always there to say, yeah, but your youth will always be there. Even this person from your youth, Reggie himself, will be there to help carry you through. It doesn't always have to be you by yourself and you being an old fucking creep like the tall man. You don't have to go into that world. Well, it really essentially could be Reggie is your dreams. Reggie is your spirit. And as you go through life, your dreams and your spirit gets truly diminished. When you're eight and nine years old, you you fantasize about being anything, uh, the president, an astronaut, anything. The sky's the limit, and as you start growing up, it just diminishes. Well, I guess I could be this. I guess I could be that. Maybe in high school you learn some talents and you get good at something and you stick to it, but for the most part, people graduate high school, go to college, and they sit behind a desk for the rest of their lives. Their spirit is destroyed. Their will is destroyed. Their dreams and their hope is gone, and you get stuck in the system of, I, got, I just got to make money. I just I got to make money because I got to buy stuff and I got to pay for no, stuff. No, man, you can fucking sell ice cream and play music, dude. That's you the spirit. You don't have to do that. You can do all these things. You could work and you could love what you work. It doesn't even have to be just uh, the hippie aspect of it. But really, why can't you work every day and love what you do? I don't want to go on a rant about the society we live in, but in the idea of phantasm, Reggie, it, it, this is really apt what you've come up with is... That, that spirit, the spirit that doesn't get destroyed if you don't let it happen. And as we progress throughout the series, you can ask yourself the question of, did Mike let reality just turn him into sheeple or whatever dumb fucking Twitter phrase you want to call it? But really, you know, you, you do become monotonous. You just become a part of the nothing. You go to work, you come home, you jerk off, you die. You might have some pleasure here and there, what, smoking weed? drinking some beer. Nobody really does anything anymore. We're all on fucking Instagram watching each other collectively do nothing. But what if your dreams and hopes as an eight-year-old of being an astronaut never went away and you still had that tenacity your entire life? That's, that's Reggie. I mean, he's always ready to fuck. The world's ending. And he's going to get laid no matter what. So, I mean, I remember being 16. That's, that's pretty apt. You've got that going on. Oh, there's going to be monsters? Let me get my four-barrel, double-barrel fucking, what is that, a quad-barrel shotgun? Everything is so exaggerated. Everything is so fantastical. It really is the imagination, the hopes, the dreams, all these things that just get squashed from 16 to 25 when you finally enter the real world and realize, shit, this sucks. I got to pay taxes. This <laughs> Fucking sucks. What is a personal property tax even for? Well, this sucks. You know. Well, I mean, and... okay. Like, think about the real world, and you have a ex ice cream man who's balding and has a ponytail, and a lot of people, in in a reality sense, would go, "I just don't feel good about myself anymore, and I just I don't know where I'm going, and I'm not married, and I'm I'm 55 years old, and I've never had a real job. I've always been this ice cream man." But Reggie, on the other hand, is yeah, I'm bald and I'm fucking hot, and I'm not like, hot and it doesn't love, stop baby. him. He still pursues fucking twenty five year old women like he's goddamn the same age, and he's just like that's he has no negativity when he comes to himself. He's a perfect representation of a being who has a spirit who has not let the world crush them completely. It's just like nah, fuck that. I probably can get laid. She'll probably have sex with me. You're you're almost sixty and you're you're kind of weird and you have no job. There's no prospects for you. Nah, she still wants me. And what's amazing is the the, the human being, the the actual Reggie Bannister, is, is so that. Yeah, he's so similar to this. He's been happily married for quite some time to Gigi Bannister. 
And in real life, obviously he's not out fighting the tall man, but just even being able to experience him in a few minutes, for, for, for example, with me, I don't know what started it. We somehow got on to talking about buffaloes and we <laughs> stood around for like 15 minutes talking about buffaloes with Reggie Bannister. He had a new record out at the time and I believe something on the record was about um, you know, the conservation of buffaloes. And that's that's my moment. That's my perception of Reggie Bannister is we just stood there and talked about it. And I don't know fucking anything about buffaloes before this conversation, nor did I have really any thought about conservation toward them. And I walked away just feeling good that I was recognized as a human being, but educated. And when you go throughout the series, and it's, I don't know, it, it, this, is, this is so weird to say because it's not like educated. It's not like he set me down and told me everything about buffaloes but I, the way he speaks to you and if you as you watch the series the way he operates the way reggie is everything is constantly moving forward there's no regression there's never stopping there's never time to sit and have these sorrowful feelings i don't want to do spoilers too heavy but something awful happens to his family in the second movie and he immediately we got to we got to just keep moving forward and it's a weird kind of thing to say but even experiencing him in person you just feel that you just feel that this is somebody that is always moving forward is always finding the good is always going to find the good and will always make that a point of their life to find and see the good and you're dealing with a series about an evil interdimensional being that wants to completely enslave the entire earth and turn them into little tiny jawa looking people which is a horrible example because Phantasm's older than that Star Wars movie. I don't remember which one. Was it A New Hope? Yeah, A yes, New Hope. Yes, it would be A New Hope. Yeah, they I... were shooting before A New Hope came out. I don't see um, that to even be like a sarcastic fuck. Like, I've never seen me Star Wars. I, I don't know, man. I don't. <laughs> but, I mean, just getting back to the original Phantasm itself, like, even all the horror elements of it are very adolescent. And what I mean by that is, None of it makes any fucking sense, and that that's important. Well, Mike has an interaction with the tall man, and the tall man ends up losing a finger. This is how he convinces everyone that really bad stuff is happening. He takes the finger home, shows Jody, and then it turns into a fly. It's like an R.L. Stein sort of thing. It, it really, But the adolescent nature of it itself is what makes it so fantastic. And if it wasn't for the previous two films that Coscarelli had done, I don't think he would have been able to to handle that. And two, a lot of it does come down to Kenny and company. That while they were making that movie, A. Michael Baldwin lived really, really far out. And for most of the time, he ended up staying and living with, like for six months, uh, the people that ended up being the producers and art director for Phantasm. So when it rolled around into this movie, everyone was really, really close and really, really familiar. And Phantasm itself took around six months to film. So when you're watching these relationships on screen and the love is so compatible, it's not, I mean, I don't want to say it's not just Don Coscarelli, but it really is. Everyone had spent so much time with each other. And for the most part, Reggie included Bill Thornberry. Everyone was only about 9 to 10, maybe 11 years older than A. Michael Baldwin. So it really became a familial situation with, this is our kid brother. He had his first beer, the wonderful Dos Equis, which I'm on my, like, Quattros Equis tonight, having a good time. <laughs> Drove his first car, learned how to drive on the set of Phantasm. I mean, the commentaries are widely These available. People have known everybody. each other for 45 fucking years, maybe even a little bit longer than that. That's what's truly like outstanding about the Phantasm series is just like, it is a family. I mean, even behind the scenes, 
it's a fucking family. And just like a real family, as we'll get into as we progress with our fantastic month-long Phantasm series, there are fights, people break up, and it all kind of ends well. Well, <laughs> it's not a fucking Hallmark movie. This is the way Phantasm and, and the series and the inner workings of everyone does kind of end like one of those happy Hallmark movies. Everybody liked each other, then they didn't. Then they liked each other, then they didn't. Then they liked each other again. Angus Scram passed away a few years ago, and that's a moment that I, talking about memories, I clearly remember crying. Just reading the news and being like, oh my god, the tall man's dead. This evil interdimensional alien that's haunted my dreams since I was around 14 died. And it's... It is like, I don't know, I, I can't speak for you or every other Phantasm fan, but when you learn how this was done, when you learn the, the journey that everyone went on, and if you were a fan young and you've taken the journey, you really feel connected to them. I mean, I feel like Reggie is my uncle. I feel like Mike is my brother. I, I've watched this series for... I don't know, 25 years now. It has a great deal of importance to me, and every single time I watch it, I still feel the exact same emotions. And that's where the credit to Coscarelli comes forward, that he managed to make something incredibly timeless. No matter how 70s and 80s looking the movie is, it's it's timeless and it's beautiful for that. And not only that, it's, with a few exceptions of a little bit of nudity, some other things in the film... It's a right, the perfect... first five seconds. You got a big, big rack. Well, I mean, it's it's per it's a perfect film for children, and I'm being 100 percent serious about Tits that. It's right a perfect off the horror bat, movie show for, it to your kids. <laughs> for like an eight year old kid. It's like it's I I think it's on their level. It's on their their wavelength, and I wouldn't I wouldn't fret about showing my kid this movie when she turns like seven or eight years old. She, I mean, I'll have to explain some things, but I mean, other than that though, it's just like, it's kind of your brain at that stage is able to experience these things and not get all hung up on plot trappings. And well, this doesn't make any sense, but to a fucking eight year old, this all makes perfect sense because they've had dreams like this. You got to look at a story you told maybe on the last episode or the episode before that you recently showed your niece jaws. He warned them that it was going to be scary and it completely bored her. Takes us back to the beginning of the show. And it's a hard conversation to have because I don't want to come off as like old man yelling at Sky. But I think it's very obvious that generations change. I don't think even eight-year-olds would even have an appreciation for something like this now. I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with being able to show children something like this. You've got some, like the first five seconds, you've got that giant rack. Death, somebody gets fucking stabbed in the chest. I could understand that being upsetting and spooky. I, I definitely can get behind why parents wouldn't show that. But I don't think an average eight-year-old is anywhere near as adventurous as... Uh, I'm from a different generation. My generation and yours. I mean, you, you're what, Gen X? And I'm one of them there, millennials. So we both came from different time periods, and I'm still, 20 years after you, able to relate to Mike. I don't know if kids could relate to this now. I just don't I, see it. I think... So to a certain point, and that point is a lot of the problem with something like Jaws is there's a whole lot of exposition and there's a whole lot of plot. And that was kind of my point. It's is, kind of an adult film. This is not very plot heavy at all. I mean, you don't have to wait more than five, six minutes for some other weird thing to happen. Something else to like 
kind of intensify your curiosity that's with very the valid. film. And I think that's why it's so perfect for like, you know, a more youth market for like, t- like, you know, 12 year olds, 10 year olds and stuff like that is because it's just, it's so fascinating to see where it's going and their brains can lock into not like knowingly, but they will lock into a lot of these concepts and they will take the concepts to where the ideas are taking them. And like I said before, it's just like so many adults get, caught up in trying to understand what's going on and i but this doesn't make any sense it's just it doesn't need to it's kind of like a horror never-ending story which is again i'm just filled with weird fucking statements tonight but when you watch that movie as a child it makes perfect sense because what the never-ending story about is the great big nothing despair darkness completely destroying everything that you know and love phantasm is the, the same thing. I don't see really a, a big difference in it. When you go back as an adult and you sit down and you watch the never-ending story, this kid gets transported into a book where there's little people that ride on giant moths and there's monsters that are made out of rocks that also eat rocks, which seems like cannibalism. But again, diving a little bit too deep into stuff and you find out that the nothing is because he was sad. It doesn't make any sense. It's emotion. It 100% is being able to relate yes, to that emotion. and what's the difference, though, is you grew up Yes, it held so much relevance when you were a child, and you felt that all that emotion. You, especially when the fucking horse dies and shit, you just because you're going with the emotion of the ideas. But and when you're the young, scenes. when you're a kid and you're experiencing this, these emotions aren't every day. When you're 27 and the world sucks and you're paying taxes and you're working at a meaningless job every single day of your life and you feel no joy and you don't have any hopes and you don't have any dreams, you sit down and you watch the horse die and you're like, "Yep, horse died." That yeah, sucks. horses die all the time. What's your point? This movie doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of my point in the whole thing. Yeah. Phantasm, uh, that's a, actually a pretty good comparison with the Neverending Story because it's there's so much about childhood emotion and childhood fear and how these uh, like how to deal with these things, how to deal with these emotions and feeling, these new emotions that you're feeling. And as an adult, when you get to that point, you just go, well, fuck this. Why do I need to waste my time yeah. with this? And it's really, I mean, I hate getting like technical here, but you go back to like Thus Spake Zarathustra or um, Gay Science by uh, Frederick Nietzsche and his concept of what nihilism is. When you when you look at even the, the bold statement, God is dead and we killed him. The whole point is you fucking grew up and you stopped caring about everything and the darkness moved in. And that's really what it is. You've got, again, another famous quote. Don't stare into the abyss too long because the abyss will stare back. That is, when the abyss stares back, that's losing everything. That's losing your hopes. That's losing your dreams. Essentially, you could break that down to growing up. And people tell you all the time, grow up. You need to grow up. You can't. No, don't. You don't have to have that concept because you were explaining this earlier. You're never going to change. When you're 75, the same thoughts you had when you were 17 are going to be in your head because you're the same fucking person. You, you, You can't. You just can't get rid of who you are inside of, of, of who you are. That's just kind of how you are until you eventually die or let everything go away. You you become this idea of nihilism and, and what – you've got the big Lebowski that seems so exhausting. The concept of giving up on hope is like the, the abstract nature of like Christianity. The, the idea of hell is being away from God's love. That's all it is, right? 
that's all nihilism is. You're not away from God's love. You're away from love. You're away from the concept of love. There's nothing. Holy shit, I think we cracked the code. Phantasm is just the never-ending story. (laughs) I I really don't think, I mean, we're just chatting here. I'm not trying to say Don Coscarelli pulled anything from the never-ending story, because I know the book is is a little bit older. No, it has similar concepts and ideas behind it. It's, It's so much about the nothing creeping up, a.k.a. the tall man, something along those lines, of just losing imagination, losing adolescence, and going into a world where it's all fucking cut and dry bullshit, and you're all just concerned about making ends meet and you don't have any fantasy left in you. You don't have that imagination. And like Reggie is that imagination, like the, that family, that holy shit family. Phantasm is also fight club. <laughs> I don't know. What the what? fuck? <laughs> this is getting deep here. Everything is just a remake of phantasm. Maybe we're actually just living in phantasm. I don't conceptually we can really like I just got derailed hardcore getting into fucking nineteenth century German nihilistic philosophy. But that's kind of the beautiful thing with the entire series is there's just so goddamn much you can do with it. There's so much fun you can have with it as a fan if you really don't let the darkness in. If you spend all this time trying well, oh, this movie doesn't make sense. I can't figure it out. I just don't understand. I mean, do you sit and like dissect Fellini that way? You got to look at it as an art film. You got to look at this as a a true. I mean, I rant about this on the show all the time. I feel all film is art. I feel it's my favorite type of art. Most people don't see it that way. And I completely understand if you're listening to this and you don't see Phantasm as art and you're looking at it as entertainment. Still, don't dissect it that much. I mean, we've spent a fucking hour dissecting it and we've not bothered to. We barely talked about the movie. We yeah. talked about the emotions of the movie. I spent like four minutes, to, not four minutes, I spent like four seconds talking about what the plot was. It's very simple. Kid sees some weird stuff going on and tries to convince everybody about it. Weird stuff goes on. Is it a dream? Is it not? Who knows? It doesn't really matter. It's the experience of Phantasm. And as a, if you're a film fan, I think you should be able to at least appreciate, one, an excellent score. Just one kick-ass soundtrack. Two... Amazing editing. This movie would have never been what it was if it wasn't for the concise editing of Don Coscarelli. They shot so much unnecessary stuff, and he realized that. He knew that. He saw it and went, nope, doesn't contribute to the film. Let's cut it out. And that's why it's not a four-hour piece like Midsummer that actually answers zero questions. It's editing. It's artistry. It's the craftsmanship behind it. And then three, Reggie fucking Bannister. (laughs) Enjoy it for that. I can't see any... I hate when I encounter people that don't like Phantasm because I, I, I feel animosity right off the bat and I don't know what to say. It's like when somebody gets into a fight with you in high school and you just throw a punch at them because you don't know... <laughs> what do you mean you don't like Phantasm, you fucking asshole? What the fuck's wrong with you? Well, you that's somebody who probably doesn't have a lot of imagination because there's so much... They let the darkness win. Well, they're, yeah, they're trapped in the idea of, as a film, you need to answer questions that you ask me. and. I can be in that camp sometimes. If you're going to pose a bunch of questions, you need to answer them in a film. But if you get the tone right, if you get the, the concept right by behind what film you're making, you can do that. Phantasm does that appropriately. A lot of other films just seem like kind of weird for weirdness sakes or they didn't have a concept or 
a question in the first place. Uh, so I don't want to whip Midsummer, but I think that's kind of a good thing to use as an example here because it's a terrific film. I enjoy the film. Uh, on the Death by DVD reboot, I think it was our second episode. It's fine. It has no reason to be as long as it is, and most of the questions that you present in the film don't matter. You just have this narrative plot of this girl from point A to point Z. You introduce all this stuff throughout the middle. You've watered it down. You've made it too much story over plot it doesn't fucking matter at well this we point. know what's happening in the film yeah. like like what like maybe an hour in that things are gonna go wrong i've seen wicker man what's where are we going with this and that's where we go it just took us forever to get there and it's pretty that's fine it had great tone editing 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 and uh, i i know there's always backlash over talking about popular new things because you just sound like a doomer Phantasm is a million times better than Midsummer, specifically because of editing. You can find easily all the deleted scenes for this movie. It's not that they're awful. They're fucking pointless. They're, they're as we went in earlier, they're just like Kenny and Company. They're directed for... They're character building stuff. And it's pointless because the idea of this is coming directly from Mike. And it's all about emotion. It's all about the absolute feeling. And it's just so strange that you get... I don't like Phantasm. Well, sit down and watch like a Bunuel film and fucking tell me what you think about that. Have you ever heard of Giuseppe Andrews? <laughs> you really want something to complain about? Watch the fucking trailer park movies that guy makes and stay away from Phantasm. Yeah, but uh, again, it's just that's a bit of a problem with just modern filmmaking in general is we're very much gotten into the marvel mindset of well how does this connect with this to this this it's like it's irrelevant stop stop why does it have to connect universe why can't it just be a thing i mean why can't you just enjoy a thing for it being a thing and that even goes back to being a child remember having just a stupid fucking toy that hardly did anything and you just liked it because it was the thing you liked what happened to being able to do that what happened to just being able to say i like it i like it because i like it and that's the justification for doing so i don't need fucking the Falcon learning how to be Captain America and one guy getting his arm back. And then there's a whole TV show about it's just way too much to have to sit down and attempt to get through. If you're a fan, that's great. You've got everything you want. Well, I like it. I, I'm not even complaining about it. It's just different than phantasm though. It, that not everything has to be like that. And that's what's great about phantasm is they are two completely different things. I can watch all that Marvel stuff and get off on how long, and drawn out this concept is and blah, 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 and the interpersonal stories that are going on in that. But there are also things out there like Phantasm to take me off to a completely fictitious, batshit sanity world where not all questions are answered. Hell, most questions aren't answered, but that's irrelevant because... Well, I mean, you just said something kind of important here. It's about asking the questions, not answering the questions. Go ahead. Questions aren't answered. Are they ever in life, though? I mean, every single day, all of us wake up, and we all have memories. We all have things that we've done wrong that you can come up with these scenarios trying to fall asleep that give you anxiety late at night. What if I said this? What if I'd done that? What if back in 2005 I did this and went down this hallway instead of doing that? And it ravages your mind. What if none of that happened? You know, it really comes down to hope and dreams and i think we kind of uncovered something i mean i guess personally on our episode of death by dvd of what happens to you in life and when you view the phantasm series with this light it's just another venue for you to explore for you to look at yourself that's one of the remarkable things what if 
none of these anxieties happened? What if all these awful things weren't there in life and you could do things differently, just like you come up with in all your anxiety-ridden thoughts, questioning yourself? That itself is the presence of Reggie and what he stands for. But when you progress and when you get to the end of this film, I, I really think the question is asked, will you ever be able to change? Will you ever be able to get over fear? If, if you're traumatized, what do you do to get over it? And it's a really horrific ending. I think it's a really awful like horror ending. I mean, it's just like the killer wins because fear is the mind killer. We didn't really talk too much about the Dune subplot throughout this, but... Fear is the mind killer coming from Frank Herbert's Dune is a really important thing that with everything we've been discussing, you transition back and forth into Michael doesn't want to grow up. The tall man appears at the end of the film. That's the mind killer. That's 100% fear. And he's accepting it into his heart, which unfortunately, I guess, is growing up. You get to a point, and I think almost all of us, not almost, all of us are guilty of we hate our lives. There's a point once a week, I hate my life. I just don't want to do this. This sucks. There's not a lot of joy in this awful time of plague. Where is the joy? And right now, I mean, we are living kind of in the phantasm universe. As you progress through the series, the world becomes destroyed by fear. The tall man feeds on fear and he takes away from us. And we live at a point that we are so far from each other. There is no compassion. There's no chance to have a Reggie. There's no chance to have dreams and hope right now. And we can't let the fucking tall man win. You, you've got to power through. I mean, Phantasm might be the most inspirational movie to watch in a time like this because everybody needs hope. You can never, ever let that be extinguished. Your job might suck and everything is awful, but goddammit, do you enjoy something? Find it and never let it go. Explore it and never let yourself fall from that. Remember who you are and just fucking don't let society kill you because that's the tall man. They're going to crush you down, put you in a weird barrel, and send you to a red planet. You're going to be a slave for years. You don't want that. Live today, because tomorrow you might be a weird little small person on a red planet. Hey, Hank. Do you think the red planet could be a representation of late-stage capitalism? It might be. <laughs> well, the red is symbolistic of what's happening in Florida right now with everybody taking off their mask. <laughs> <laughs> We won't get political on this one. This might be the one chance that we, for a whole month special, don't get inherently political. Because really, I don't even think the next episode, I shouldn't say this, this will make people not want to hear it. It's not going to be that different. But we will, we're going to be forced to get kind of... We'll kinda... discuss about Echoes, because like one of the things, just us talking right now, that I've kind of realized is, think about Michael and all the films. In the first film, he's hopeful, he's fighting. In the second film... He like gets Reggie together. It's like, no, we can't stop fighting. Ultimate but by the badass. third film, Michael is slowly starting to give up. Yeah. And then the fourth film, he's almost completely given up. And then when you get to the fifth film, though, Reggie is kind of giving up. But Michael is there because the roles have kind of started to reverse themselves. Well, is it so much that he's giving up or is it the fact that, unfortunately, age does exist? That's what I'm saying. It's it's not so much that he's quitting like, I, I can't deal with this anymore. Reggie's a fighter. He'll always fight. But he's gotten to a point in his life with his age that it's just like, I don't know if I can fight anymore, Michael. And then Michael is there for him. They're, like, they're always there for each other because family unit. That's the difference between us and the fear. Fear is, is ever-growing. Fear doesn't need food. Fear doesn't need love. It doesn't need warmth. It can grow, and it can constantly grow, and it grows in the darkness, and it's like a shadow. It can envelop and take 
everything over and it can destroy. Once it sets in and gets into your blood, it's all that's left. But we age. Our vessels, our bodies are, are useless. You might have that same concept that you've had in your head since you were 15, but one day you're going to be 72 years old and you can't do anything anymore. You're overexerted. You don't have the ability to live the way you used to, but you're stuck with all these same thoughts. You're stuck inside this little fucking sphere and you can't do anything about it. You have absolutely no control. And as the series articulates and as Coscarelli tells things, and, and earlier you had mentioned you didn't know if this was you know kind of planned or if this was something that Coscarelli wanted to do, turning the series more and more directed into Reggie. I think it was just shooting the shit. Every single Phantasm after part one had a problem. Uh, the second movie, as we'll get into, had problems. And then the third movie, people were offended by what happened on the second movie and they didn't want to work. They weren't as happy as doing things. So every time Don was forced to come back and heavily rely on <laughs> his editing and having the great decision to delete so much from the very first movie and, and omit it completely and rework everything. And it's all the inner workings of his mind. And when you come to Phantasm, and I guess as we get ready to end this, what we have really is Don Coscarelli is Mike. I think all of this and this universe is, as we've been discussing, Don Coscarelli's fears. And really, when you look at him, he is the person. He is the perfect example of somebody that he grew up but never allowed himself to grow up. He grew up and found a job that he loved, that filled all of his passions, that made him feel whole, that gave him a reason to wake up every day, and through doing that, made some of the greatest friends of his entire life had experiences that we can watch that we can see in phantasm but he is michael i mean he's grown up and done serious work and he's changed here and there but he's always come back to phantasm he's never let his childhood die he has always let phantasm grow forward and when we come to phantasm ravenger which don coscarelli didn't direct it's his spirit you know it's the idea of him it's it's us. It's people like us that are sitting and doing podcasts that are so touched by this that, I mean, our whole lives, I don't know when you saw Phantasm first, but it was probably before I was fucking born. I saw Phantasm 2 when the it came out on video, and then I backtracked maybe a year after that. So you're talking about late 80s. Yeah, for me, I mean, I was young, and it was an experience that, you know what, maybe like 2000. I don't know. I don't really remember how old I am sometimes. Regardless, it was an era and an experience where I saw myself in those shoes. And what's really unique is as we grow as, as people, you see yourself changing. You know, I was Mike when I was a kid, but I, I hope I am Reggie. But maybe I'm, I'm Jody. You have all these stages and you look at all these characters. And when you get to Phantasm Five and you see the development of all of them, it really is every stage of life. Every person at a different point, every person through a different... Perspective. That's what I was about to say. It's almost like like Romero did with the Dead series for a while. It was a kind of a examination of the time period that he was currently living in with night, dawn, day. Um, and the same thing goes for Phantasm is these are different stages of, of life that even Coscarell himself is going through, of going through his adolescence, going through his, uh, his teenage years, going through his adult life when he starts to you know, feel like that everything is... Like yeah, I feel like giving up on this all the way, turning it all the back around on its head um, to something like Phantasm Five. So I think it's just it's kind of a meditation on just life in general and where we go, where we start, and 
how like we emotionally react to those different stages of life. And that's kind of the series as a whole. Yeah, I mean, you've got that Kafka motherfucker who was like, hey, what if one day I woke up and I was a cockroach and they still wanted me to come into work? That's a bastardization, I guess. <laughs> I so eloquently explained Franz Kafka. Phantasm is a giant representation of life sucking. It's gonna suck. There's no way you can get around it. it it's going to inevitably suck. But if you hope and you, you never let the dreams and, and you die, it's not just hope. I don't want to say soul. I just don't want to say spirit. It's love, man. It, it really is 100% love. We got to let the inner hippie out here. We got to let the Reggie Bannister out here. The one thing that can define all of us, the one thing that can save the entire planet is fucking love. If we had compassion for one another, I mean, the, the, the whole world right now, we have this program to try and fucking colonize Mars and we could take this money and we could feed and clothe every single fucking homeless person and, and make America great again. We could take down borders and tear down walls and learn to speak every language and love one another as a human being. But we always choose to allow fear. We always choose to allow the tall man to infiltrate our lives. That's no matter what or who the president is, the tall man. Politics, the tall man. Police, the tall man. It's fear. And fear is the mind killer. So I think we've uh, gotten to the end of Phantasm. I know we didn't really talk much about Phantasm. We talked all about Phantasm. Yeah, I mean, we didn't do fan theories, and we will. We'll get there, I promise you, because whether I, Alexander Nash, likes it or not, once we get around to part three... I got some fucking shit. I've got some theories. We're going to be talking about Steven Romano and his writing, and we've got that Phantasm fan spec script that came out. There's so much. I love Phantasm. <laughs> I love Phantasm so much, and it's wonderful to share this. A few years ago on the live format of Death by DVD, we did a month-long Phantasm special, and it was so fucking good, we just wanted to do it again without re-releasing it. And I think the the, the most passionate and fun thing about this is those four or five years ago, we were completely different people and we, we've changed so much. Everyone does, whether you like it or not, or you notice it or not. And when you go through the series, you you'll start realizing that with these characters. And I think that's really fun. And I enjoy doing this. I hope everyone that has listened, if you're not a phantasm fan, please heed us. Listen, find yourself something that, isn't dark, man. The darkness can't win. Phantasm forever. Can you feel it? Can you feel it? So until next time, we'll be sitting here at midnight. And until noon directly, uh, like 12.05, we're going to leave. Maybe 12.06. We got to get out of there. We'll see you next week. The ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. Do-do-do. Do-do-do-do. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. On the next episode. Jump in the Himikuda with Hank, the world's greatest, and I, Alexander Nash, as Phantasm Month begins. We're going to be driving straight into the heart of every single movie in the entire series. Phantasm 2, next Friday.